listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak with author and media commentator Rachel Botsman. We really think about the link between trust and progress and innovation and how societies move forward. But when you start to think of it like that, you realize that trust is actually the key component, not just for companies, but any organization that wants human beings to try new things. Rachel shed her insights into new potentials for trust, the current state of collaborative consumption, and innovative new uses for blockchain technology. This episode was recorded on location in London, England, at the offices of publisher Penguin Random House. So Rachel, your new book is on trust. So how do we define trust and how should we define trust? trust? Go straight in there with the tough question. No. Um, the reason why I say it's a tough question is it's actually fascinating um, that trust is the most de- debated sociological concept in terms of agreeing on a definition. And there are actually hundreds of papers um, disagreeing on the definition of trust. So I was looking at all of these things and um, a lot of them around predictability of outcomes and people's expectations. And I thought this was really interesting because what was missing is when you're asking human beings to trust, there is a degree of vulnerability involved. And so I started really thinking about the relationship between trust and risk. And what I realized is that in any situation where you're asking someone to trust, and that could be in a human relationship, that could be in a new product, it could be in a new concept, a new place. You've always got these two variables going on. So you've got a known state that um, you're comfortable in, and then you've got an unknown state. And then the gap between is what we call risk. But risk isn't what enables human beings to try new things and to sort of move forward. So trust is literally the bridge between the known and the unknown. And that's why I define trust as a confident relationship to the unknown. In what way is trust this bridge? Why that concept? Why do you think that is the most useful definition of trust? Because I think many definitions of trust, it feels like trust is an attribute rather than a process. We rarely think about the link between trust and progress and innovation and how societies move forward. But when you start to think of it like that, you realize that trust is actually the key component, not just for companies, but any organization that wants human beings to try new things. The other thing that I think is really important is that often people talk about trust and transparency as sort of brother and sister. But I don't think, I actually don't think they're two sides of the same coin because, you know, if you think about a relationship, I have a dear friend who should remain nameless and she's, oh, you know, my, my husband and I, we have a great relationship. It's so trusting, but she checks his emails and she checks his messages. And that is actually, that's in her words, transparency, right? So I think when you need organizations or you need things to be completely transparent, we've actually given up on trust. And so what I love about trust is that there is this degree of uncertainty that we don't know the outcomes of how things are going to turn out. And and that's really, when you think about it, that's how progress happens. You set up so wonderfully at the beginning of the book, this environment in which it feels like today trust is at an all-time low. We talk about things like fake news. Set that up as a misdemeanor. You think in actual fact, all these things that are happening in the world means that trust is even more important. Could you explain that? I kept opening every magazine, every paper. You could look at the headline, but the symptom was that trust was in crisis. So whether that was to do with healthcare or politics or the media or fake news, 
old world, new world tech companies. And I was like, you know, this doesn't add up. This feels like a fearful meme that is being spread like a virus. And I don't think we are a less trusting society. I think suspicion and fear is very high. But one of the things I started to wonder was like, why do we say we don't trust bankers, but yet 2 million people will stay on Airbnb? And so what was really helpful is when I started to think of trust like energy and like energy, it cannot be destroyed, but it's changing form. That was a real sort of light bulb moment, if you like, because then what I realized was that trust that used to flow upwards to referees and experts and regulators and institutions was now starting to flow in a different direction and technology was accelerating and enabling this process. We're going to talk about how collaborative consumption and trust work together, but could you quickly explain what collaborative consumption is? So collaborative consumption was the subject's my first book, What's Mine Is Yours, that I wrote in 2009. And then what was funny about it was I intentionally picked that moniker and that term because I wanted it to be the opposite of hyperconsumption. And um, it was it was based on a very simple idea of recognizing that all kinds of assets in our lives, um, not just physical assets like spaces and stuff, but also human assets, people's skills, people's passions, mon- monetary assets, that the world was full of this idling capacity and that what technology was enabling us to do was unlock it and make it liquid. So um, the book opened with Airbnb and it's really embarrassing to read because it's like, there's 10,000 rooms around the world and it's going to be massive. And I remember my editor saying to me, like, you shouldn't open with this story because this company is going to be dead by the time the book comes out because it's just not going to work. Strangers are not going to trust one another. Now, what was interesting is like when the book came out, it's a real lesson to me because it was the middle of the financial crisis. And everyone thought this was a trend, that this was about people being cheap, um, trying to make money. And I sort of underestimated how much ideas, if you like, they react to the environment which they're born. But then it started to get traction. And and then people realized that that they they didn't like the term anymore. So they said like, no, we've got to rebrand it, the sharing economy, because, and, and I always said that was a problem because... In some instances, there were really, really beautiful forms of sharing and they still exist. We just don't hear about them anymore in the media where people are doing amazing things. And then other platforms like Uber was just launching at the time. They were about the efficiency of assets. They were about these asset-like networks that were basically enabling people to get things cheaper, more conveniently and more efficiently. And I knew the term sharing was going to become an Achilles heel. Airbnb isn't really sharing is it it's about utilizing a platform to allow you to exchange excess surplus if it was truly sharing Mm. the currency would be i would give out my sofa for two weeks and that would gain me two like couch surfing couchsurfing.org which used to be a wonderful model which is now being destroyed by (laughs) airbnb and i was a a big user of i was a big user of couchsurfing.org when i was traveling through san francisco in 2012 and now those sofas that were previously given out in exchange for the ability to either do up someone's house or hang out with some interesting people and they now have a dollar figure on them that sofa is now worth something thanks to airbnb don't think sharing has to be for non-monetary reasons. I think money can be involved. And I think the trouble with Airbnb is it's a very mixed model. I do think there is a segment 
that it genuinely is sharing. Even when you're charging for a room, like I've, I've met many of these hosts and yes, the money is an important driver and, and we shouldn't underestimate like the percentage of people that now depend on that for their mortgage or their rent, but they're doing it because they do want to share their home and they do want to share their local experience and, and have a human connection. So, you know, I think the empty nesters are really interesting. It is for social reasons as well as, you know, you do meet most hosts and they don't meet the money. They just like the human exchange. The problem is that when any platform hits scale, commercial interest will take over and you've got landlords that are just buying up buildings and there is no element of sharing involved and it's a mixed model, right? And so when you go on that marketplace, it's really hard to make the distinction, which is why I think they're moving in the food and the experiences direction because they're trying to bring back that humanness and that local flavor that was really kind of key to their success in the well, early I days. I saw that as Airbnb realizing that unlike Mar- Marriott or Hilton, Airbnb hands you over to your host Mm. and then there's no longer a touch point with them. So Mm. when you go and check into a hotel, you have the Hilton or the Marriott experience. The chocolate on the pillow is Hilton (laughs) or Marriott. The towel is a Hilton or Marriott. Mm. With Airbnb, their touch point ends as soon as you meet your host. And uh, I almost have the flipping verse view of perhaps why uh, why they're so obsessed with trying to build equity around the entire experience. I think they're worried that, you know, they want to keep you in the platform. They want to be the thing that you book your experience in San Francisco or London with. Look, don't get me wrong. I, I don't think they are shy of their ambitions to really own that hospitality ecosystem and beyond that, right? Like, so it will become a portal into your life. But I genuinely, I mean, I, I know those founders and I, I genuinely believe this isn't about them wanting to be in the middle of the relationship. I think they want to help facilitate deeper relationship and for Airbnb to have a broader meaning. But I do think they've realized that it's been diluted and that the experiences component and the trip component is a way to inject that back in. I also think they realize that there's just so many rival products coming onto the market. Like you look at the hotel brands now and you look at things like Rome, you know, it's, it's like Airbnb in a hotel. I I think I'm less skeptical than you. I always (laughs) wondered why there was never a Hilton BNB. I I always thought that, you know, Hilton demanded regulation around Airbnb or was at least one of the groups that demanded regulation around Airbnb. I always wondered why they didn't go, you know what, we're going to start Hilton BNB, but the rules are you're able to give out your free room if it has a power shower and a goose feather pillows and accessories and I always wonder why that wasn't the reaction to that. Well I think it's you know one of my favorite writers and thinkers is Clay Shirky and he he put it so brilliantly I think it was in his second book where he said institutions will always try to preserve the problem to which they are the solution (laughs) and when you understand that quote like it explains so many ways that we just naturally respond to disruption but we are seeing that you know Hyatt just bought One Fine Stay Wyndham just bought Love Home Swap I find it amazing that it's nine years later and you know many of the hotel brands are now building these like local community hubs where you have your room but you share your meal and it doesn't feel like a hotel and all the rooms are different Is that less of a reaction to it? Airbnb and more of the rise of boutique hotels. There seems to be something quite interesting about having an other experience as opposed to the same homogenized experience that you can get in any city through any hotel branded experience. Yeah. I mean, I think it was an emerging trend in travel where, you know, Hilton has spent more than a hundred years building a brand that is about consistency or Marriott that, you know, you stay in a Marriott in Budapest and then you stay in one in Tokyo and they exactly, exactly the, the same, same yeah. down to the pillows. And that's, that was, and the 
concierge and it's all about reliability. And so you can imagine them as brands being like, what just to happen? Like, you know, our whole brand promise was essentially on the trust of consistency and reliability. And now the traveler is saying, actually, we want a little bit of misalignment. We want a little bit of surprise. Um, we want things to be different. And what they're actually trusting is is something completely different. Well, let's talk again about trust and how that operates in platforms such as Airbnb. To a degree, you make a decision when you book at Airbnb as to the price and the location, but also the trustworthiness of the user, mm-hmm. in part because we have seen some examples of fraud through the platform, but also because we want to make sure that human being is a good human being and every individual not just has a profile for how comfortable their room is, but a profile for how personable they are. They're mm. building this thing that you call a, a reputation. And how does trust and reputation interplay? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question because um, one of the things that I'm fascinated with let's just stay on Airbnb because is where does trust really lie? Definitely when Airbnb started and they were an unknown brand, trust was very much between the host and the guest. And then I think as the platform became more sophisticated, even from the algorithm around the recommendations, the payment systems, instant booking, you could argue that the trust migrated more to the technology. And then now as Airbnb has become more of a brand, the brand still plays an important role. And people often say, well, there's no trust between the host and the guest because often they don't meet one another. But I don't think that's true because you've always got to trust the host in terms of is the picture uh, really like the place? Is it consistent in their offering? One of the things that always fascinated me is how do we make judgments about strangers? How do we place our faith in strangers? And what kind of signals do we use to make an assessment? You know, we saw this in eBay. We saw how powerful. And, you know, you look at that system and it's so rudimentary. It's five stars, basically. And so now what's happening is that these profiles and these rating and review systems are becoming more and more um, sophisticated, if you like, and more and more contextual. So people are realizing like, it's okay if you're a nice person, but actually it really matters if you're clean and if you're polite, if you're going to be a good host as well. And so people are starting to realize that their reputation is a currency. Um, So if you are a host and you have a lot of really good reviews and you have a high rating, you're more likely to get a booking. Similarly, as a guest, you know, it happened to me where I had an unfortunate experience and I left early for the airport. I am taking responsibility for this, but I was not the one who checked out and my kids are left a little bit of a mess. And I got a really bad review and I found it hard to get a booking after that. And that's what I think is so powerful about these systems is yes, there's a lot of flaws in these systems, but now with the blind review process, it does keep the marketplace strangely accountable to one another. People do behave differently in Airbnb that they behave in a hotel. You've used examples of specific behavior change with regards to how towels. (laughs) Well, I was thinking about myself as a guest and I was thinking like, what do I do in a hotel that I don't do in an Airbnb? And I'm like, guilty of leaving towels on the floor. Oh, me too. Guilty, yeah. right? Guilty. No, I try not to use a different towel every day because I object to that. But like when I leave, it's fine if they're on the floor. I would never, ever do that on an Airbnb because I just know that that could lead to a judgment about me and it's not worth it because it could damage my reputation. So these ways in which we're capturing trust and turning that into reputation, you talk about these things called reputation dashboards, mm. the ability for every single human to have a dashboard of how <laughs> trustworthy they are. Yes. 
I, do you know, I, I feel I was very naive when I first started speaking about those things. <laughs> Could you, well, could you explain how this reputation dashboard idea may operate? I had this idea and it was basically from talking to lots and lots of users where they would say, I've got this like super host rating on Airbnb, but I want to become a task rabbit or I just want to start selling on Etsy and I'm like a ghost in the system. And at the same time, you know, I was thinking about my own life where I've, I've lived in every continent but Antarctica and the biggest pain point is not settling into a city is like, I cannot get a phone. I cannot get insurance. I cannot get a bank account because I'm a ghost in the system. And it's really hard to port your credit history across countries. So my idea was if we could own all this data, this data is us. Like this, this data belongs to us or this data being generated on us. It has value. And could I have a Rachel Watsman dashboard that say, when I go to my insurance company, or I go and try and get a flat, I could pay a lower tenancy bond because I have a really good reputation. And the idea was that that the more you gather that information, it could become highly contextual because like if I'm a really good driver on blah, blah car, maybe I could use that in terms of my driving insurance. Where I said where I was naive is a, like the companies don't want to give us this data, right? Because well, I wonder if, have you seen any potential solves for that? Because the, the mm. reputation data that we build, say, in, in eBay or Amazon or Airbnb or, or Uber or Uber ranking, they all exist in separate stacks mm. across separate systems. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe you don't want your Uber ranking to define your ability to operate a car, for example. Yeah. I mean, that's the tricky thing about this is people, they tend to forget that trust is highly contextual. And so what I really didn't think hard enough about is forgiveness and transgressions and that, you know, as much as the reputation could empower us and lock value, then all the bad mistakes that we've made could also follow us for the rest of our lives. I think there's, you know, there's many startups in this space and a few are starting to crack it. So there's a really interesting company called Trady. They've been in the game now like for seven years. And the founder said like they've just been warming up, running around the track so that they're ready to go. And, and they're focusing actually on some emerging markets where people cannot move into the city because they cannot get an apartment, a place to live because they have no credit history. Or as we were talking about transient people that they then have to pay a really high tenancy bond. And now now they're working with insurance companies and have actually got a product on the market using people's reputation data. But I think what's really interesting about that is that they're going into situations where people understand the risk and people understand there's that reputation could be a risk premium, that it has a value versus convincing you that your reputation has value. Have we found any solutions for relinquishing our reputation data from the stack? Is anybody working specifically on finding solutions to allowing us to have these reputation dashboards? There's a part of me that kind of likes the idea for the same reason that you were mentioning what happens when you enter a market starting from zero. So if you're a brand new Airbnb host, the amount of times I looked at a brand new Airbnb host, realized they've got no reviews, the how looks really nice but then I'm like is that too good to be true because they've got zero rankings (laughs) they've got zero ratings it's it's only been there for a week there is a part of you that goes you know what I'm gonna go for the other one which is slightly more expensive looks slightly less nice but at least they've got 89 reviews I mean if you start at zero how do you enter the reputation market and it and it becomes harder as the market becomes more mature Uh right because then people so those ratings they're social proofing they're really really important psychologically and in a booking I think the other really big problem is like so there's a new platform launch called kid and co 
and it's focusing on the family segment. And we have a home that is perfectly set up for families and we, we need to go into family homes. I can't port my reputation onto Kid & Co. And even that's where it's frustrating because it's the same behavior. It's the same offer, but I'm locked in. Now, some platforms, so there was legit, there's one called Good Karma. There's one called Trust Cloud. There's one called Trust Portal. They're all figuring out how to scrape this data, but it's still this question as to whether it really belongs to you. So there's no open API for reputation. No, and you can such. you can argue it will happen with the blockchain potentially. The problem is that we don't have a digital data locker to pull it into. So you think of the number of leaps you're trying to get the average consumer through, right? Oh, your reputation has value. You should try and port it. Oh, it can live over here. We haven't quite figured this out yet, but it's going to have uses in all different parts of your life. And then I think the ick factor is that we don't like to be judged, especially when I started studying and researching what was going in China, where every citizen will have a trust score, so to speak, or a social citizen score by 2020, it would be absolutely mandatory. And that is the real extreme example of this. And that's what I think people fear. So they place more fear on the idea than value. Let's talk about those Chinese citizen scores. I mean, it's everything from how you act as an individual to even your shopping habits mm -hmm. becoming a marker of your character. Could you just explain that specific Chinese example? I should give a little bit of context. And so the intention behind this, or so the Chinese government say, is partly economic, right? So fraud is a really big problem in China. And what we underestimate is that many people do not have a credit history. So the way it was set up initially was that we can bypass credit scores and we can look at all these different inputs that show whether a person is trustworthy and their likelihood of how they can behave, which sounds quite logical. Right. Um, but then you look at the inputs and, and what they initially did, which they've now banned, is they gave licenses to the big data company. So they went out to Tennyson, they went out to Alibaba. And as you say, like they could track these this example is like, say I bought nappies because I have kids. My score might go up because I'm a responsible parent. But if you were playing video games, you're lazy and your score goes down. And I don't think it's going to stop there because you can see like they must be able to see the behavior within the video game. So the question that I then, I think the next wave of this is like, what kind of player are you? <laughs> There's no line to it. And I think the thing that really frightens me about it is the inputs when they start to get into social networks, you know, based on if you said something about Tiananmen Square, that your score could go down. And because social connections are built in and it's Chinese culture that you are accountable to how your friends and families and colleagues behave, that you could get punished for what someone else does. So you can see like, well, I'm going to unfriend that person because they're dragging my score down. But then the frightening thing, and I'm sure many people have watched Black Mirror, and one of my favorite episodes is Nosedive, which is just genius where the main character who's Lacey Pound and she's living in this world. And she's living in this world where she wakes up in the morning and she practices a smile because she might earn a couple of points. She gets a coffee and she rates how the milk was swirled. And she's trying to earn these points because she wants to stay in this apartment and her score has to reach a certain level. And like I could go into the whole episode, but the frightening thing was with the system in China, they did exactly the same thing that initially it was all built around reward. So you could get a fast track visa, you could get better interest rates on your loans, your children could even go to different school, but then they announced the penalties. And what was so scary in nosedive in this weird way that, you know, art mirrors reality 
is that it ends and Lacey cannot take an aeroplane. She can't take this plane trip because her scores drop too low. And in China, they ban more than 6 million people for taking flights because they had low trust scores. And so what I find very, very dystopian and disturbing is that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. There's no correlation. I get it's this national system to try and make people more accountable, but really it's gamified obedience. There's a wonderful opportunity insofar as identity then becomes divorced from biology, whether it's gender or race. You're not judged on those mm. characteristics. You're judged on the quality of your character. And there's, yeah. there's great possibilities with that. But then the flip side is essentially it creates another class system all of its own, you know, the, the trustworthies versus the untrustworthies. Uh, well, the thing that worries me is, and I, I rewrote that chapter and rewrote it because I kept saying, is this my Western view? Is this my Western lens on this? And, you know, it's a popularity contest that by design only a few people can win. But the reason why I kept rewriting it is we're not that far off. Like, you know, you think, you go, oh, that's, that's never going to happen here. But you look at the way people thumbs up, the thumbs down. You hear like people saying, oh, I'm going to be friends with you because you have thousands of followers on Instagram and that people's crowds has influence now. And but influence is different from trust though, isn't it? Because I would never trust, say, one of these big YouTube stars like a Logan Paul. I certainly wouldn't <laughs> no, trust him no. with my kids. <laughs> if I had kids, I certainly wouldn't trust Logan Paul with them. Influence is very different from trust and influence is built on generating characters. I mean, these are these are performative personas that exist online through a certain lens, through a media lens. It's, it's very easy to not fake influence, but it's very easy to generate influence by actually following the tropes of, of what goes, let's say, viral. Yeah. Whereas trust is an entirely different thing. It is. And it, it's a really good point. I mean, you couldn't buy influence. Clout was a really good example of that and peer index and all those things. But where I was going with it is the behavior, the mechanic of constantly looking at what someone's doing and having a response to it in real time is the next wave on is, is then that a judgment of how, not whether they look nice, but whether they're in some way competent or honest, or that's when it starts to get into how trustworthy that person is. And that's where I think it gets incredibly frightening. I mean, I think it's actually already happening. It's just that we're not visible to the way companies are making judgments about us. Humans are these flawed, messy individuals. We make mistakes. I mean, how does this sort of system allow for individuals to make mistakes, to be rebels, mm. to rebel, to, to be radical? I mean, in the UK, Theresa May was arguing for the fact that you can remove your digital identity when you reach 13 and start afresh and, you know, generate a new life for yourself and get your parents to remove all your Facebook photos of you as a baby that potentially could be analyzed to work out whether you're already or anally retentive if you're sucking your, your thumb <laughs> in, a, in a photo of you at five years old. Or how do we build in a degree of allowance for genuine mistakes? I know, and, and this is the frightening thing because I think what is beautiful about human beings and what makes us humans is that we are complicated and we are messy and we have bad days and we make mistakes and that's how we learn and that's how we move on. And I was probably the last generation because I'm 
about to turn 40, where it's gone. There is no record of my university days. There's no pictures of me at Piers Gaveston. And, and I can like, which is a very good thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah. that was like part of me growing up. That was part of me discovering like, it's not a good idea to do that thing. It's like on your 18th birthday that you get the right to control and delete. Um, because if we're judged by those errors when we go and you go for our first job or whatever it is, even like our, where our children can go to school. That's a really precarious place where we're taking society. Can an anonymous identity be trusted? Silk Road was mm. essentially a drug-based buying <laughs> platform that was heavily built on trust. Mm. Arguably, society says that you know drug dealers are the most untrustworthy people. You, you can't trust these individuals who are doing criminal activity, and yet they had these incredible ratings on Silk Road. The entire ecosystem was built on the fact of, are you going to get your ketamine delivered or is it and is it going to be a good, good cut yeah. of cocaine and they, they were anonymized identities at the same time at which they were trusted entities yeah i mean how does anonymity really play into this yeah i mean context is king i really i do think that and um i think it was in jamie bartlett's book actually the dark web where he said it's not dark it there's actually a thousand torches um shining on, on how the dealers behave. And the amazing thing about the dark web is it actually gives the consumer a lot of power, right? Because there's so much choice that those dealers, to your point, like they have to send the drugs on time. They have to be the correct weight and the right quality. And, and if you actually look at the testing of the drugs, they're saying that is the case. And the interesting thing is they do have pseudonyms. They often don't have photos. They're just logos. But I would say that is a mechanism that is in some way actually making people more trustworthy. The key ingredient of trust, people often think it's about competence and reliability. They're pretty easy for human beings to achieve. It's intentions that is key. So are your intentions aligned with mine? Now, if you're street dealing, you could argue no. But if you're dealing on the web and that rating is critical for your future income, suddenly you've aligned the intentions of the buyer and the seller in a really interesting way. In other words, trust can be divorced from authentic identity. Yeah, I, I, I think it really depends on the situation. So I think the expectation is on the dark web, like if you were using a real identity, you'd kind of be suspicious. It's an expected social norm. Whereas if I was king porn on blah blah car um you know you'd you'd be suspicious because you want to know that driver's name actually matches their license but i i do think you can have a trustworthy system i think you can have trust even when people are anonymous we mentioned very briefly blockchain and blockchain allows you to decentralize some of this in a way that perhaps that might be the model through which we can build an exchange of trust and reputation. Could you, could you explain your interest in, in blockchain? I have a hard time with blockchain. Um, I mean, get, I get what it is, but I have a hard time because people are describing it as a trustless system or a trust machine, or like, it's like this idea that you no longer need intermediaries or because you can transfer trust directly. And I think that is rubbish because a lot of trust is required even in how the blockchain works. The interesting thing to me about the blockchain is whether it can truly remain decentralized. And are we seeing what's playing out right now with the banks that they just take a technology and they're really good at 
privately owning it and putting fence guards. So it just becomes a more efficient way of transferring assets. So that's the bit that I'm kind of cynical around. Originally, most people know blockchain through Bitcoin and the ability for Bitcoin to buy drugs from the dark web. But Ethereum is slightly different insofar as Ethereum allows for these things called smart contracts, which kind of helps this whole trust yeah. element. It's, it's that magic piece of paper where I write on my piece of paper and it replicates on your piece of paper and all the other pieces of paper across the world. I mean, in what way is Ethereum different and how does it actually help with this, this issue of trust and building reputation? The blockchain is like the backbone under Bitcoin. And then the easiest way to think of it is that the original blockchain that was built by Satoshi Nakamoto was a bit like a calculator. It only had one function, right? So it could transfer money. And when Vitalik and the founders of Ethereum came along, they might describe it like this, but it was kind of like the smartphone, right? So how could we make this, this open decentralized platform where people could build lots and lots of apps on top of it? The piece that excites me the most, and I think has the most promise for trust is these smart contracts. And this idea that two parties could agree to some terms before some kind of event where there is a clear outcome. So that could be an exchange of a house. That could be the results of Wimbledon. Um, But there has to be a clear outcome. And that the smart contract could automatically transfer the asset or pay out based on that outcome. I think that is we can't even imagine the applications of that and that we could remove so-called trusted intermediaries, whether that's real estate brokers or betting agents or lawyers, God forbid, or accountants. Or That's why I think people are saying like this is really the next wave of the internet in terms of we really transformed communications and knowledge transfer, but we didn't change the way human beings could fundamentally trust one another around the transfer of assets. So I think you're totally right that it's not the currency piece, it's the smart contract piece that is the most interesting about Ethereum. I still believe to a degree that blockchain will allow us to have some form of identity wallet. Mm. If we are these entities that not just produce CO2, but also produce data, surely we should be allowed to hold it in our own cloud, our own bodies, or hold it to ourselves, and then make the decisions as to how we trade it or donate it. You know, with biodata, maybe I want to sell something to a drug company, some of my biodata to a drug company, but maybe I want to donate it to a medical research group who are doing incredible work around rare diseases if I was having to have a rare disease. The issue comes with how do we then get the general public thinking about this before the cryptocurrency markets crash and we don't trust it. Right. And it might not be tied to crypto. It might not happen. Yeah. yeah. Right. But no, I think you're, I mean, you know, we're going to laugh, I think in 10, 15 years time, that we're worried about our stars and reviews going in this locker because the exhaust will become so much richer and so much more personal. And it will be like, we're admitting how our bodies function on a minute by minute basis and, and what happens to that data. So I think getting the platform and the dashboard and the lock, whatever language, we've we got to get it right now, right? And so we have to take the ownership back. And I, I do think the technology that offers the most promise is the blockchain around that. And you can see in countries like Estonia, right, where they're saying, you know, they didn't f- have formal s- institutional systems and they're, they're starting off and saying, right, everyone has a digital identity and it is going to sit on the blockchain. And then once you have that, you know, your health data can go in there, your social services data can go in there, but you, the citizen, own that data and you have to give us permission as the government to access that. 
Well, it might not be governments or institutions. It might be other non-human entities such as bots and algorithms that make those decisions based on that data on our behalf. Uh, you, you mentioned in the book, and it's, it's one of the most exciting chapters for me personally, is this idea of the possibility for us placing trust, not just in humans, but in algorithms to help guide us. And there's, there's some wonderful possibilities there, mm. but there's also some, some potentially problematic and scary outcomes. When you talk about this idea of trusting a bot, the reaction is immediately negative. You might be a rare exception, but there's very few people that go, right, Rachel, like, can you, could you, could you tell me how that's going to change my life for the, the better? The, the, the human response is, holy crap, robots are going to take control. We'll lose control. We are, you know, superseding power to the, these algorithms. And then you start to say, well, you know, do you let Netflix choose your shows for you or Amazon make, we've already done that, right? You're already trusting algorithms to make decisions. You're just not conscious of the process. And I think what's happening with self-driving cars in a strange way is it's brought this issue of how do you trust the intention of a bot or a machine or whatever it is. And it's it's bringing that question to the surface, even though it's been there for quite a long time. The example of autonomous cars, they're trying to code the human elements back into the design mm. of autonomous cars because of that word intentionality. Mm. So when you're driving a car, you, you look at the cues of the human behind the wheel. So you know they're not paying attention or they're staring elsewhere mm. or they're on their phone or, or they're not staring directly at you. And now you have researchers at certain universities in the US designing these cars that have these light systems that are essentially mm. blinking at mm. you. There's, there's a human element to these self-driving cars where as a human, you're crossing the road and you're not sure of the intentionality of that car mm. as to whether it's actually seen you or not. And now they're queuing in these kind of ways in which these non-human agents talk back to us and show their intentionality. And I think that issue, the word intentionality is going to be the most important thing to allow us to take take this fuzzy notion called trust and actually gift it to non-humans. Not Yeah. And I, I think it's not even how... The machine responds. It's even earlier than that. Like, so one of the interesting studies I came across was being done by MIT, where they intentionally programmed the car with different intentions, right? And so there was the car that would always make the right choice and the trolley problem, all that, and would be quite rational if it was in a situation where it had to choose who to kill. And then there was a car that would always protect the driver. And you ask people, like, which car would you choose? And if they're talking about other people, they're like, oh, you should pick the car that makes the rational judgment. If they're talking about which car they would prefer to buy, mm. it's the one that would always protect themselves. And so trusting intentions is the person making that decision as to how the car is going to respond at the moment is the car companies and the engineers. And so we have to trust the intentions of them, that they're not just programming the car that's going to sell the best because it's going to protect the driver. You know, I think one of the best books on this is, um, it's called Weapons of Mass Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. I think it's a, and and she talks a lot about this. And I think this is this is the really tricky thing is that the optimistic side of me says, where do humans make very bad judgments? Either because they listen to the wrong trust signals, or because the mind is, you know, as Jonathan Haidt puts it, it's a story processor. It's not logical, and bots can be very logical and not judgmental in a way that human beings can't. I find it really interesting that we go negative so quickly to this idea where there is so much potential for algorithms to actually make 
better decisions um, than human beings. And I, I think the thing that we're worried about is that, you know, I think of my relationship to the technology, it's still that it's very predictable. And there's an easy way for me to assess that predictability. Does my car turn on? But as soon as things start making decisions for us, then you have to trust the intentions behind the decisions. And that's really hard to assess. So it's one of the issues that IBM Watson has right now with regards to how IBM Watson is diagnosing for certain diseases. IBM Watson, at least the PR team, are very focused on saying IBM Watson doesn't diagnose IBM Watson makes suggestions that then a human doctor looks at and the human doctor diagnoses. They they always want that intermediary. You hear this a lot with companies who are doing very, very sophisticated background checks, say for recruiting, and they're giving people the information to say, like, is this person a really good fit for your company? And, but they're saying, you know, a human being must look at the scorecard Right, you, you, and you have to look at the context as to why they might have scored lowly on antisocial. Like, how do you enforce that? Because, it's, you know, whether you're a doctor or whether you're a recruiter, you naturally want things to become more efficient. And th- this is what I find so hard is that technology naturally makes things more seamless and speeds things up. And, and it's this very accelerated mode that is the enemy of trust. But if you know what the technology or the algorithm is looking for, isn't it then possible to trick and play that game? So, for example, friends of mine are being interviewed at the moment through video. And these videos, Mm -hmm. these are for corporate jobs, and these videos are being watched in the first instance by essentially a bot for certain cues. And the folks who know what that algorithm is looking for inside of that video with regards to certain cues are able to fake their way through that first piece of the system. Or, for example, people who've been told how to signal the body for certain cues to fake the results of lie detectors. If you know the rules of the game, then it's possible to cheat. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an argument to that, that could the machine and the artificial intelligence get to a point where it understands every single trick in the book because it learns over time. But I'm just saying, could you fake trustworthiness? So I used yeah, to have no, a friend. No, I you can. I used to friend yeah. Every time I used to be in a bar in London, he used to go on a four square and find the local vegan restaurant that was open and check into the local vegan restaurant instead of the pub. And I used to ask him, why are you doing that? He goes, well, if the insurance companies or if the medical insurance companies ever, you know, do look at my four square data, I want to make it look like I'm living a healthy life and not sitting in the pub every every so often. So it's possible to a degree to fake this stuff. I, I think though, you know, the comforting thing about trust is its sister, which is trustworthiness. So that's that's the traits that human beings have that we assess. So it's, it's actually quite easy to trick competence, which is one, reliability, which is the other. It's very, very hard to trick integrity which is tied to that intentions piece. So I, I think, like, how, how would you trick, and I don't know how. Well, it's when designing the algorithms, yeah. you've got to look at certain things which, again, it's context. As you said so wonderfully at the, the beginning of this conversation, is, is, a, is a context issue. Yeah, and, and this I think is really interesting. So if you think of the ingredients of trustworthiness being competence, reliability, integrity, and benevolence, how much people care. The alchemy of that is very different. A lawyer, for example, right? No, 
sure benevolence, if I really want a lawyer that's going to go after someone and is the opposite of me. So I think this is, you know, that is the point that people can still be trustworthy to do. It's what you are you asking them to do, which is the issue with so many of these surveys where they go, do you trust the media? Do you trust journalists? Right. Well, to do what? Like, wh- what is it you're asking um, the question around? So context is king when it comes to trust. So if context is king, then almost it, it's impossible right now to design those systems. It has to be built on some form of messiness. There has mm. to be there has to be some degree of fuzziness in the system. You, you call these moments where we're, we're suddenly able to trust these new systems trust leaps. Mm. Could you explain what a trust leap is? So a trust leap, the way I define it, is um, it's when you take a risk to do something new or differently to the way you've previously done it. It doesn't have to be monumental things. Like, so it could be something relatively minor. So I no longer need a paper bill. I'll check my bill online. It could be the first time you used an ATM machine, used your credit card details, put your credit card details on the website, used eBay, get in a self-driving car. And human beings, we are naturally very good at taking trust leaps. We've been doing it throughout the history of time. Bartering to currency is a really good example of a trust leap. I think the difference today is that we are being asked to leap faster and higher than ever before, which is why everyone talks about this unprecedented rate of change. But ultimately, like trust leaps are really, really good in terms of understanding, again, innovation and progress, because this is what enables people to move forward. So they're kind of like this conduit or channel that enables new ideas to travel. But I think where companies often make a mistake is they're asking people to leap too far, too fast, or there isn't enough social proof, which is a different way of thinking of early adopters, but there's not enough people who've made the leap for the rest of us to go safe. It's worth trying. There's something in it for me. And so it's kind of weird, but when I started visualizing like human beings leaping into all these different areas and, and really trust was sort of enabling that it, you know, it, it does start to explain so many patterns of change and, and progress. What I worry about is if you're constructing an identity based on reputation, it's going to make you very adverse to taking risks. No, well, not necessarily. So look, I just want to be clear that I, I am now fully aware that this is a very dangerous situation that people have reputation dashboards. But I could argue the flip side of that, because if there was a real bonus, if my score went up because I have a high propensity to take risks, because I'm willing to go places and try things that other people haven't tried. And, and through that, there's medical progress, whatever it is. You could argue that I, you know, I get a little boop in my reputation. So, um, but the thing that worries me is continuously using penalties and rewards to motivate human behavior. And that's, that's the piece that I struggle to get my head around is how do you, and this, this guy who's uh, founded Trady, he put it really well. He said, you know, I don't think we should see reputation as a currency. I think we should see it as a risk premium. And I think that's a really good way of framing it. There's something underlying all of this is, is the thing I kept thinking about when I was reading your book It's like, God, maybe there's just some issues with how this generation's been parented that they're looking for something to just trust or look up to or to find some sort of authority at the same time mm. in which they're they're told to reject authority, but then they're like, but we need authorities in our lives. And there's this yeah, kind of no, whatever expands, contracts, expands, contracts. I think it's, it's a really astute observation. And I think probably not my parents, but my grandparents, 
they had a very clear structure around trust, right? Like they had a very clear hierarchy around it. And whether that was in the schools and the respect for their teachers, there was a very clean line around that. Like you did trust what experts and economists and scientists said. And we've grown up being told to question everything and to be told even like what is in your Facebook feed at the top next to your pictures of your friend's newborn baby may not be true. People then placing so much hope and trust into something that is essentially untrustworthy. And so I do think it is very much tied to this information overload to hierarchical structures breaking down where we don't know where to look. Do we look up? Do we look to the person on the bus? Do we look to our friend on Instagram? And through that confusion, you see new forms of dictatorship, um, new forms of aggression, because they're just very loud and clear to people. I think maybe to the, the degree there's a fracturing of how we generate our identity. We have to generate mm. one identity for the online persona, something else out here. Then there's an arguable rise in mental illness with mm. regards to how people are operating in the world. And then they look to trust a therapist to tell them the way through. So we have these constant pulls over the way in which we operate. Trust then becomes this kind of very, very fuzzy, very mm. problematic element of that. It does. And, you know, it's funny because when I, I, I'm a generally, I'm a very optimistic person. I like to redesign things so that they're better. And the, the hard thing I found writing this book is... I'm lying to the reader if I if I pretend this all ends well. And I remember the it's all a lie. No, I remember the man. And I'm not saying that like the book is very depressing, but the manuscript came back and it was like hope, you know, uh -huh. hope. And I said, look, there is hope in this, but the hope in this is actually around individual accountability. It's around like all of us stopping blaming the institutions and blaming the tech companies and starting to say, I accept those terms without thinking. I accept. I place more value on convenience than trust and I take an Uber ride. I buy books on Amazon and they don't pay their fair share of taxes. And like that for me is actually the hopeful piece in this is that through the mess, we see greater individual accountability in society. And that by letting maybe the machines, the algorithms take over the decision making, we in a funny way realize what it means to be human. Thank you to Rachel for sharing her thoughts on how modern technology has generated a trust shift. You can find out more by purchasing Rachel's new book, Who Can You Trust? How Technology Brought Us Together and How It Might Draw Us Apart, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.